0: Thank you, Chris, very much indeed. We are then on principle three of uh, this journey together, looking at how Jesus lived intentionally. Uh, And as with all of these principles, they seem to become clearer as Jesus approaches his death. It's not that they haven't been part of his uh, way of living up until then, but as the cross comes into sharper focus... Jesus' obedience seems even more remarkable. And so, uh, picking up this month, uh, this week's uh, principle of uh, learning humbly, we've looked at how, as Jesus moved towards the cross, uh, he lived passionately, he lived more intentionally, than last time uh, he loved completely. And now, how as the cross looms and the closer you get, you can see how increasingly Jesus' life was an act of obedience from beginning to end. Turn with me, would you, to Philippians uh, chapter 2 for a moment. You might want to keep your finger in that one that we had, uh, but find Philippians chapter 2. Sorry, I haven't written down the page number. 1179, that's it, exactly it. 1179, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, Paul is talking about... uh, the attitude or the approach to life that Jesus took and uh, if, if you notice it's like at every stage it just gets increasingly more remarkable. So verse 5, your attitude, Paul says, should be like this, the same as Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Well, why not? We grasp at everything we possibly can. But Jesus was different. Instead, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. It's kind of like it goes down and down and down and down uh, and he ends up uh, as a, a man. so, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus learned or learnt obedience. He learnt what it was to be an obedient human being. He not only lived passionately and loved completely, but he learnt humbly. And as the cross and the horror of it became ever more real, Jesus didn't shrink back from this path of obedience that he was learning. He embraced it more fully as the stakes got higher. And so we're in this campaign entitled, One Month to Live, subtitled, 30 Days to a No Regrets Life. Did Jesus have a pile of regrets at the end of his life? Did he have a, a, a pile of regrets about the way that he lived? We'd have to say, no, there were no regrets for Jesus. Why not? Well, he describes why in his conversations with the disciples. He says, the reason I'll get to the end of my days with no regrets is that what you see me doing is everything the Father has for me to do. So much so that it's not my life, but it's the Father's life being lived in me. You can read all about that in John chapter 14 if you want to follow it up afterwards. Jesus is saying, what I do is just what the Father gives me to do. Now is there anything that you or I could be doing at any time that would be better than being obedient to God? Is there something that we could do that is better than obedience to the God who made you completely, who loves you unreservedly, and who has the greatest plans for all our lives? Anything better? No. Instead, it's when we step out of God's plan and purpose for our lives, when we step off the path that he has ordained for us, when we turn our back on his ways and embrace ours instead, that our lives become full of regrets. Obedience, this learnt obedience, is the pathway to a life without Regret. We need to learn humbly, to humbly follow his ways and not ours. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes. The full verse is, do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. What a brilliant perspective. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so... Let your words be few. Shut up. You don't know what you're on about. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Many of us, most of the time, are busy telling God what we think he ought to do. And explaining to him, as if he doesn't know, exactly what we would like. We behave as though we are the gods and the one in heaven is somehow less aware than he should be about the harsh realities of life on our earth. No, God is in heaven and you're on earth. God is the creator, you are the created. God is outside time, you are bound by time. You are finite, he is infinite. So, shh, let your words be few. As we learn humble obedience to a life of no regrets, uh, how, how do we do that? What, is, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, I want to try and draw some of these uh, some ideas out of the, the story that uh, of Peter, a uh, little bit of which Chris read to us. Uh, and number one is this: learning humbly deal with disobedience. If we're going to learn what it is to be obedient, we have to discover what it is to deal with our disobedience. Peter had crashed. There's no uh, two ways about it. He totally derailed his life as he grabbed the steering wheel for himself. He probably thought God couldn't, and in any case wouldn't, use him again. And we can relate, (coughs) excuse me, we can relate to Peter. So, how did he move? from where he found himself, this moment of madness, this place of utter disobedience, this place of being locked by his own failure, how did he move from that place, rushing outside and weeping bitterly, to become one of the greatest movers and shakers in the early church? High Impact Church, a few weeks ago, essentially uh, is all about what Peter and the gang were doing. How did he move from where we see him today, to that place of being useful and purposeful in God's kingdom. Well, he, like us, need to take responsibility for failure. You see, when Peter, when we first meet him through the stories, and if you know some of the stories about Jesus and how he called Peter, you will know that Peter was full of his own success. In fact, so much so, on the night before Jesus died, Jesus says, what's coming up, speaking to all of them, is going to be really tough. You're about to face the greatest challenge of your life. It's likely that you will fail. Peter goes, not me. Yeah, the others, they'll, they'll fail. They'll bow out. They'll make, but not me. Not me. I'll always be there for you, Jesus. I'll step up to the plate. I'll stick with you to the bitter end. You can count on me, even if the others dessert I'll be there I'm the champion I'm the rock look at my name and Jesus looked at Peter Peter full of himself and said soon a cock or crow three times three times and that's exactly what happened so Peter proud full of himself went out to take on the world crashed and we find him weeping bitterly in some corner, hiding in the shadows of the walls, maybe outside Jerusalem. This picture of deep regret. And all it took was Jesus to turn and to look at him. And in that moment of eye contact, Peter knew his failure. So picture Peter for a moment, locked in his mistakes. He's running away from the situation, he's weeping, he's failed. And maybe you can relate to that because your posture in life has not been too dissimilar for a little while. He's huddled in the corner, head bowed, curled in on himself, weeping over his mistakes. And I want to ask you this morning, maybe you've been living like that for too long. Maybe there was a day when you metaphorically went out and wept bitterly. You saw the look of Jesus, something happened and suddenly all your failure fitted into place and you ran and you cowered. And still you sob, because of how it feels. Jesus looked at Peter. And when Peter and Jesus made eye contact, what did Peter see? Did he see condemnation? Did he see Jesus writing him off? Was it a searing glare from Christ that severed this relationship once and for all? I doubt it. Jesus was hours away from the cross. Hours away from that moment when Jesus himself would ensure forever that all our failures need never be fatal. I want to ask you, if you're cowering away, it's time again to make eye contact with Jesus. You will be surprised, I think, by what you see. And in the light of his gaze and in the glow of his grace, have the courage to take responsibility your failure. In fact, the future of all our lives depends on our ability to take responsibility for our failure. Proverbs puts it like this, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses finds mercy. The Living Bible puts it like this, a man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful, but if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. Will we come clean about our disobedience? Will we Face it, own up to it. Until we do, we're in that place. We find Peter crushed, locked in in ourselves, even weeping bitterly. But you notice that Jesus follows him. As soon as Jesus is gone to the cross, he is he, on the third day, on the Sunday, he comes back to life. Peter is almost the first thing Jesus talks about. He says to the others, "Go." tell his disciples, he says to the women, go, tell his disciples and Peter. Peter gets a special mention. Jesus is on Peter's case following him. After such a a catastrophic public failure, Jesus is on the road to rehabilitate him. You might have understood if Jesus said, go tell the disciples, don't tell Peter. Go tell the others, but don't bother with Peter anymore. He doesn't need to know. Go and tell Peter. Of all of them, Peter needs to know. And eventually, Jesus catches up with Peter. And Peter's gone back to work. Where do you go when you're running away? Peter's gone back to work. He's gone back to fish. And in a sense, he's running away from it all. Maybe I can just go back home and forget about it. Maybe I'll just ditch these last three years. I've made such a pig's ear of it now. And he's there fishing on the beach. And Jesus goes to him on the beach. And in a simple phrase, offers him incredible uh, forgiveness. Jesus said to them, and specifically to Peter, come and have breakfast. Jesus, in those simple words, is saying to Peter, look, come, let's share this meal. Let's have this meal like we have eaten together so many times. Let's get back to where we were. Your failure need not be fatal. Come and have breakfast. Forgiveness that is real, tangible and offered. But will Peter take it? Peter has this decision. Will he own up to his failure? Will he face his shame? Will he uh, expose himself? Or will he run up the beach? No, I'm busy fishing, Jesus. No time for breakfast. Or some other reason why he cannot come. Peter could have declined. I can't believe that you will forgive me. Peter could have thought in his heart. Peter could have thought in his heart, I I won't believe that Jesus will forgive me. Subtitle, I can't forgive myself. I can't possibly have this breakfast because I've failed so much and I'm locking myself in. But the door to Peter's future was through those bacon and eggs. Or whatever it was. That was the door. That was the door through which Peter would have to come. It's the door of forgiveness. The door of forgiveness. If we are to learn humbly, we need to accept forgiveness offered. The only door through which Peter could be rehabilitated. A story is told called The Room. I dreamed I found myself in the room. There was no distinguishing features except for one wall with small index card files. Without being told I knew exactly where I was. This lifeless room with these small files was a crude catalogue system for the whole of my life. Here was written the actions of my every moment big and small in a detail my memory simply couldn't match. The titles ranged from the mundane to the weird. Books I've read, lies I've told, comfort I've given, jokes I've laughed at, a lot of things I wasn't proud of, things I've done in anger, people I've judged, things I've muttered under my breath. And then there it was. The file marked lustful thoughts. I felt a chill run down my spine. I drew out the card slowly, hesitantly, and I shuddered at the detail. I felt sick that such a moment had been recorded. One thought dominated, dominated my mind, no one must see these cards. No one must ever see this room. I have to destroy them. I grabbed the card desperately and tried to tear it. It was thick and solid like steel. The more I tried, the more my fingers ached. Still the card was there, perfectly intact. It's words so clear to be read by all. Defeated and utterly hopeless, I returned the file to its slot. And then the tears came. I fell to my knees and I cried. I cried out of shame, I cried out of guilt, I cried out of regret. And then as I pushed the tears away, I saw him. There was Jesus reading each card. I I couldn't bear to watch. I couldn't bring myself to look at his face as, one by one, perfectly, deliberately, he lifted out a card and read the detail. Starting at the end of the room, he took out a file, and one by one, as he read, I could see out of the corner of my eyes some movement. I looked, and I could see him writing his name over mine on each card. The name of Jesus covered my name, written in his blood. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did that. But soon, all the cards were written on. And in the next instant, it seemed the last file was closed. And he walked to my side. He placed his hand on my shoulder and said, It is finished. I stood up. He gestured to lead me out of the room. I had a choice. Would I go or would I stay? I followed him out of the room. There was no lock on its door. And then I noticed there were still blank cards yet to be written on. For all of us, it's time to let go of our guilt. To let Jesus lead us out of the room and into our future, to deal with our disobedience, to take responsibility for our failure, to accept forgiveness offered. And if we're to learn humbly, secondly, we'll need to surrender to God's strength. God did have a purpose for Peter, a great purpose. But Peter was learning through this painful experience that it was God's strength that mattered. The slightly cocky, overconfident, rather full of himself Peter, who had thought it so obvious that Jesus would want him on his team, was giving way to a much humbler, more vulnerable Peter, who was beginning to understand that really, ultimately, in the end, he deserved nothing. A Peter who was seeing more clearly than ever that Jesus could have called somebody else. Sometimes, like Peter, we need a crash to deal with our pride and our self-sufficiency. And as Christ lifted him up there on that beach, he was beginning to understand where the real power was to be found. Peter was to learn through his struggles that it's when we're prized away from our pride, our ego, our self-sufficiency, that we can truly begin to trust in what matters most. Peter's own bold boast that he would never deny Jesus. When that was stripped away, he was learning to really trust. Without it, we would have begun Acts chapter 1 with Peter full of himself. And we might never have made it to Acts chapter 2. It's only now that Peter was ready to be used. How ironic that when Peter wept outside Jerusalem, bitterly in his failure, because he believed that maybe he'd blown it forever, that maybe Jesus would never use him, was the moment really when God says, Now, now I can use you. Now we're ready. Just a few months earlier, he was arguing with his disciples about who was the greatest and where they could sit in the kingdom. Now he was receiving forgiveness and discovering a little secret that we need to understand that is similar to this one, God is in heaven and we are on earth. It goes like this. God doesn't need you. But he chooses you. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. But he chooses us and he wants us to partner with him. Too many times we blow up with pride, don't we? Too many times I'm grabbing hold of the steering wheel of my own life, trying to control everything. We try and control our image to others, our problems, our our pain, and we're we're holding on to the wheel. I'm steering this thing myself. Wheels start coming off and we begin to get off track. All because we think God needs me. And if only I can hold on to this steering wheel, I'll be of some use to God, if I can get it all together. And God doesn't need me. And God says, let go. And then I can use you. I don't need you. But I choose you. And I long to use you. And when I come to that place of losing my pride... When I know that I'm weak and I know that I'm vulnerable. When I know that it can't possibly be all about me, but it's everything to do with him. When I'm the weakest, God is at his strongest. That's what Paul was saying. Paul was fed up with feeling weak in a part of his life. And God says, Paul, you need that weakness. Because it's teaching you to trust me. It's teaching you to understand my strength. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Are we living in the sufficiency of his grace? That's the key. Hey, I cannot begin to kind of communicate the the essence, the, the, the heart of this this morning compared to what you will see on the DVD this coming week. Whatever you do this week, do not miss your small group. If you're not in a small group, it's worth getting in one just for this week. Don't tell them, it'll be our secret. But do it just for this week. Because of the DVD. Now if you've been watching the DVDs, it'll be, it'll be as usual for a while. So husband and wife, Chris and Kerry Shook, sitting there, beautiful, teeth gleaming. How do you get teeth like that? And how blokes do you get a wife to gaze into your eyes as adoringly as that and to hang on your every word? You'll get all of that this week. So be ready. Then they'll introduce you to their One Month to Live lifestyle website. It's got some good stuff on it but mm, there'll be some moments when they'll tell you about the One Month to Live recipes and the One Month to Live Shopping list, and you're thinking, for heaven's sake, what has this got to do with me? And then suddenly, once you've waded through some of that, Kerry goes, I want to introduce you to my friend called Nick. And the scene goes away from the studio back to their church where Kerry is interviewing Nick. And it is absolutely, utterly brilliant it is one of those moments that captures like we human beings rarely do or can the very heart of the gospel authentic and raw and real In those moments, everything that is totally true about the Gospel, everything that that comes to the fore, it's compelling beauty and captivating power, or maybe the other way around might be better, it's compelling power and captivating beauty. It's there, tangible. You can almost touch it. So there I was listening to this DVD last week and typing away, and, and I said, wow, suddenly I'm in 110%. You must watch the DVD this week. Everyone will ask you about it. It will have that effect. I'll be amazed if it doesn't. And suddenly you begin to think, hey, this is not about us, and we think we're so clever, but it's all about God and what He can do in redeeming every situation. What God can do in bringing about His purpose against all odds so hey don't miss your small group did I mention that this week so to learn humbly we need to deal with disobedience we need to surrender to God's strength and we need thirdly and lastly to pursue God's power I run the path of your commands for you have set my heart free what a great verse A free heart runs the path of God's commands. And it picks up some of the great verses in the Bible that we celebrate here from time to time. Uh, Often they've been our church text. "I, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That's the truth. It's what Peter needed to hear outside Jerusalem that day. It's what Peter needed to hear on the beach that Sunday morning. It's what we need to hear, or verses like our church text. We are God's workmanship, and He has created us in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works, to do the good things, the things that heaven has planned for us. We do have this call on our lives. The question, though, that those verses and others pose is well, am I in that? Am I in God's plan? Am I doing the good things now, right now, that God has prepared in advance for me to do? Or am I missing them some way, somehow? The sat-nav is unquestionably the greatest invention of the late 20th century and saved single-handedly many a marriage. It's also taken me the wrong way up a one-way street in Cambridge and sent me through a single-track village in the heart of France with a caravan on the back. But when it works, the security and assurance that it gives is unquestionable. What about a GPS for our lives? What about somehow we could just tune in and see, am I still on track? Right turn, 300 yards. Whatever it is. Not a global positioning system. But maybe there is a GPS of different things that God has given. Things that are there in our lives that are anchors and guides. Maybe the first one is gifts. You see, our gifts help to keep us on track. We're all different. We all excel at different things. Nobody excels at everything. That's why we all need each other. Now, the gifts in you are there for a reason, aren't they? In this world where God has left nothing to chance, don't think that the gifts that God has placed in you are there by some quirk or accident. They're there for a reason. Would our brilliant designer God have designed you with gifts and strengths that he had no intention of using? No, I don't think so. The gifts in you, the gifts in me, are a guide to the path God's calling us on. Irma Bombeck, when I stand before God at the end of my life, I would hope that I would not have a single talent left, uh, would not have a single bit of talent left and could say, I used everything you gave me. I used everything you gave me. Passions are the same. Can you imagine that God made you with a particular passion and others with a different passion uh, not to want to use them? See, there are things that you love. And there are things that I hate. And there are things that people around you hate and you love. Because God's built us that way. Heaven, for some of us, is a country library and a log fire. Brothers, it's a day out on the mountainside. What's it for you? We'll we'll have different answers because there are different passions in us. God, in his genius, made you that way. And we've looked at living this high uh, octane, full-throttle life, living passionately. What is the passion that God's placed in you it's a a little guide a little pointer to the path that he has for you if you have a passion a burning passion and it's just sitting there week after week month after month year after year then hey maybe God's saying something today about what he's given you a gift and a passion that's what this psalmist this verse in the psalms is pointing at delight yourself in the lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart you put him first he'll awaken what's really there in your heart would our brilliant designer God fill you with a passion and then choose for it never to be used I don't think so and then hey this is a whole lot harder also your struggles harder and more painful but they shape you don't they our struggles teach us dependence our struggles teach us what it means to be vulnerable They expose our weakness so that God can be strong. Without struggles, we'd be full of ourselves. Without struggles, we'd be less inclined towards God and more inclined to our own self-confidence. So God says to Paul, the struggles help. The struggles help keep you on path because they keep you looking to heaven, they keep you trusting, they keep guiding you. And Paul explains... uh, uh, in this same letter, that sometimes actually your struggle is a real good pointer to the path God has for you. For he is the God who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble what with. With the comfort we ourselves have received from God. In other words, there's a weak area, an area of vulnerability, an area of pain, an area of heartache. God comes and he comforts us and he heals us and he frees us and then he says, out of what you now know, Be my agent in that area for others. So hey, maybe God has given us a GPS. These are the kind of things that we look at in the ministry course uh, uh, that Kerry's been teaching just these last few weeks now, coming to an end. When we have an opportunity just to think about what are the things God has given me? And what does that mean for what he's asking me to do? Don't wait for the next... Course, if you want to explore these uh, things, we'd be light, delighted to, to, to share with you, to talk with you about what you feel God's given you and, and how that might be shaped and used for His purpose. We'd love to journey with you. Whatever you do, if there's a passion, don't sit on it. If there's a gift, don't hide it. Let's journey together as God's GPS is seen in our lives. Ultimately, of course, it's the Holy Spirit, isn't it, that guides us. When the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all that is true. When was the last time? You cleared a space in your diary, you're not going to do anything, but you're going to get out into the sunshine, or the rain, or the wind, or do something that does the same for you, frees you from all the clutter of life, simply to ask God to show you what he wants you to see or to speak to you what he wants you to hear. The most formative moments can be in those unplanned times as we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. So we've got to learn humbly. It's a walk of obedience. I want to get to the end of my life and have fewer regrets than I would have had if I had never seen this call of God on my life. And for all of us, what's he asking? For Jesus, it meant walking this most painful path and then being exalted. For you and I, there'll be similar pains in our path to walk. But then the honour of God raising us up and of knowing I did what was asked. So, maybe not so quick with our mouths and not so hasty in our hearts. God's in heaven. And you're on earth. So let your words, let your ideas, let your agenda, let your focus, let your drive, be few, because God's in heaven, and you're just on earth. Let's pray.